2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes these words. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, and that their abundance also may supply your lack that there may be equality. For as it is written, he who, had, who, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift, which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which, which, with which we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of your boasting on our behalf. Once there was an infant playing on the carpet in the living room. She picked up a quarter, she stuck it in her mouth, and she swallowed the coin. Well, immediately the mom, she went hysterical. She shouted out to her husband, quick, call 911. Our baby girl just swallowed some money. The husband responded, oh, forget about calling 911. Call the pastor. He can get money out of anybody. 
Well, in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, Pastor Paul's intent is to get money out of the Corinthians. He teaches them on the topic of giving. In a sense, his epistle now becomes a fundraising letter, but it is really so much more. In chapter 8, Paul builds a case for Christian giving. He explains that we need to give. In chapter 9, he is going to tell us how we should give, that we give, how we give, and that's going to be the title of our message both this week and next. Today, that we give. Next week, how we give. Now understand the circumstances at the time. A famine had struck the region of Judea. The land of the Jews had fallen on hard times. Christian brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, they were hungry. These people were hurting. And Paul saw their need as an opportunity to build a bridge between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Paul decides to collect an offering for the Jewish Christians from the Gentile churches in the West. Now remember, the Jerusalem church had sponsored the missionaries that first brought the gospel to the Gentiles. Thus, these Gentile believers now owed a debt of gratitude to the first church in Jerusalem. And so what better way to say thanks than to extend their support to them in a time of need? This offering would show the genuineness of their faith and their love and their appreciation. Paul had already collected an offering in Macedonia. Now he uses their offering as an example to inspire the Corinthians to give as well. In verse 1 he says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Now notice first, Paul doesn't call their monetary offering a gift. He calls it a grace and does throw throughout this chapter. Whenever we receive the spiritual favors of God's grace, our instinctive desire is to respond by giving. You see, God's grace and our giving go hand in hand. You know, it's interesting to me how certain actions in life are reflexive. You know, we just do them without thinking. On impulse, a bleak, for example, a sneeze. Oh, you feel some pain and you wince, even a shiver. These are all responses to external stimuli, involuntary actions, as is applying the brakes when you see a police car. You don't have to think about doing that. Or getting back to work when the boss enters the office. Or slowing to observe a traffic accident. Or seeing a group photo... And looking to find yourself first, just instinctive. But here Paul mentions another reflexive action. And it is the act of giving to God. For once you have been on the receiving end of God's undeserved love and favor, it's only natural for you to want to give back to Him. Did you hear about the girl with the rich boyfriend? She was chit-chatting with her pal one day when her friend asked her, weren't you kind of nervous when your boyfriend started giving you all those beautiful gifts? 
The girl replied, no, I just kept calm and collected. But you can't keep collecting the blessings of God and just keep calm. For when God gives to you such abundance, there is this involuntary twitch. It's a desire. It's it's a compulsion to give back to Him. This is why you don't have to badger or coerce or hassle or pester a person to give to God. All you have to do is point them to His unmerited riches. Introduce them to amazing grace. And you'll transform a stingy Ebenezer into a cheerful and a generous giver to God. Once there was a family, they had attended a church whose practice was to collect the offering just before they took communion. The dad would always give his kids a dime to put into the collection. Well, one Sunday morning, the youngest boy, who was new to the adult service, he went to receive the communion. His mom reached over and patted him and gently whispered, said, son, sit down. You're not ready to receive communion yet. With a loud voice, the boy protested, why not? I just paid for it. And sadly, this is how many Christians think it works. They assume that God's favor can be purchased. That the tokens of grace are up for sale. Thus, when a person gives their offering, they're trying to buy God's forgiveness or His blessing. This is a horrible attitude. If that's you, then put your money back in your wallet. God's grace is unwrought and unsought and unbought. Here's the point. We don't give to get. We give to show our gratitude. Giving is our response. God has been so good to us. The least we can do is give back to Him. You see, that's why we call our giving thanksgiving. And apparently the Macedonian churches, Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, they had all been grateful for God's grace. Though times were tough, they had been generous. The Greek phrase here in verse 2, translated deep poverty, is a graphic word. It means rock-bottom destitution. This term was used for a beggar with nothing to his name, with no hope of improving his lot. You've heard the phrase, dirt poor? That's the phrase being used here. That describes the believers in Philippi and Thessalonica, those who gave this offering. They were so broke, they didn't have two nickels to rub together. Yet even though these Macedonians had very little, understand, they still gave generously. It just goes to show that if you wait until you can afford to give, friend, you'll never start. As a matter of fact, statistics show that poor people are proportionally more generous than rich people. I once read a study by a group called Independent Sector that showed folks making under $25,000 a year gave away 4.2% of their income to charity, while over $75,000 a year wage earners gave just 2.7%. A recent quote from the New York Times confirms this. For decades, surveys show that upper-income Americans are particularly undistinguished as givers when compared with the poor. Lower-income Americans give proportionally more of their incomes to charity. This proves that a willingness to give isn't as much about what's in your bank account as it is what's in your heart. 
Our giving is more about our faith than it is our finances. The balance in your bank account might affect the amount you can give, but it should never affect your willingness to give or the regularity of your giving. You remember Jesus' story of the widow's might? What impressed our Lord wasn't the size of the woman's offering, but what was left over afterwards. She didn't just tip God. She gave all that she had. Her giving was sacrificial, and it came from her heart. And this is what impressed Paul about the Macedonians. Realize these people were on food stamps, no less. Yet they still were willing to give liberally to God. An author paints a vivid picture of their generosity. He writes, In a parched existence, squalid little churches gushed forth with the joy of giving. Verse 3 reads, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability. Paul mentions the extravagance of their giving. They gave beyond their ability. Wow! In essence, they gave above what they could afford. The Macedonians were motivated not by how much they could give, but by the greatness of the need. Obviously, faith factored into their giving. They gave, and then they believed that God would take care of them. When it came to giving, Paul says, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Notice the Macedonians, they weren't pressured or badgered into giving. They weren't guilted into giving. Paul didn't pound them with a 10-week sermon series on the joys and responsibilities of giving. In contrast, Paul says they asked him if they could give an offering, imploring us that we should receive the gift. It blesses me when somebody comes up after a, service, after a service on Sunday and asks me the question, Hey, Pastor Sandy, you guys don't pass the plate around here. How in the world do you give an offering? That always encourages me. Hey, I think we're doing it right when people have to ask us how they can give an offering. That's what the Macedonians had done with Paul. And then Paul adds, And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. You see, the way the Macedonians gave to the Lord surpassed even Paul's expectation. They didn't just give an offering to the Lord. No, first they gave themselves. You know, some folks give an offering instead of themselves. They try to buy God off with a few bucks. Or they give to God to sort of get Him off their back, to leave them, to leave them alone. They do just enough to pacify their own conscience. But here's the problem. God could care less about your money until He first has your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. He wants you, not your money. Yet on the flip side, how can you say you're really giving you to God if you're not willing to give Him a tithe? Just 10%. What if one day you looked down on your counter at home and there were ten apples, nine red and one green? Along with the apples, there was a note from God explaining that the apples were a gift from Him. God gave you the apples solely out of the goodness of His heart. No charge. Here are your nine apples. 
The note read, the red apples are yours to use as you please. But the note had one stipulation. It also read, all I want back is the one green apple. It's mine. Yet this is what subsequently happened. The car needed new tires. The kids took up soccer. You just needed that vacation. You just kept biting into God's one green apple until this is what you gave to God. This is what you do to God when you refuse to tithe. In medieval times, when armies were converted to Christianity, many of the soldiers were baptized holding their right hand out of the water. It was their way of saying that they were giving everything to the Lord except their sword hand just in case they still wanted to fight and kill. Today it seems that when people get baptized, they're holding their wallet up out of the water. They're willing to give to God every area of their lives except their finances. I don't think that's possible. You see, the Macedonians, they gave themselves first, and because they were so sincere, their finances followed. Verse 6. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. Since Paul wasn't present, he had appointed his sidekick, Titus, to collect the offering from the Corinthians. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Now remember, the church in Corinth had prided themselves on their use of spiritual gifts. They spoke in tongues and with prophecies. But realize Paul's attitude here. So what if a person praises God in a supernatural language? So what if they even heal the sick or discern spirits if they're still greedy and stingy? On occasion, you'll find a Christian who excuses away his responsibility to give to God financially. He'll say, well, that's just not my gift right now. Paul disagrees. Giving is everyone's gift. It's our response to God's grace. We're all called on to open our hearts and our wallets. Realize the ramifications here of verse 7. It doesn't matter if you experience supernatural power. It doesn't matter if you work miracles. It doesn't matter if you're used by God in mighty ways. Real Christian maturity doesn't occur until you can trust God with your money. Do you realize that's what he's saying? Perhaps some of you have stopped growing in the Lord. Maybe you've gotten stuck spiritually. In your walk with God, you feel like you've stepped into wet cement. This could be the problem. Are you disobeying both the Scriptures and your conscience by not giving financially to God? Don't pretend Don't walk around all high and mighty, acting spiritual, if you never drop an offering in the box. Author Kent Hughes writes these sobering words, Jesus can have our money and not have our hearts, but he cannot have our hearts without having our money. Verse 8 tells us, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Here Paul is mentioning of the Macedonian believers and their giving as an example. He's trying to stir up the hearts of the Corinthians. But there is another example he now points to. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul is saying, hey, if you don't want to follow the Macedonians' example, follow Jesus. For our Lord became materially poor to make us spiritually rich. Now that's real giving. Jesus was likely born in a cave. He had paupers for parents. When Joseph and Mary dedicated Jesus, they gave a turtle dove. Why? Because they couldn't afford a lamb. Jesus became poor so that you could become rich in his love. Thus, how can we call ourselves his followers if we're not willing to give a few lousy bucks to God? And then Paul says, and in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. You know, it's been said Christianity and tennis are a lot alike. A good serve requires a good follow-through. Good intentions are not enough. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. Does it cut it in the Christian life or in our giving? A year earlier, the Corinthians had begun collecting this offering for the Jews in Judea, but they didn't finish. Paul is telling them they need to complete what they started. Reminds me of the pastor's son who grew up hearing lots and lots of theological words tossed around his house. Justification, sanctification, glorification, propitiation, reconciliation, all these Asians. One day at school, the teacher called on the pastor's son to answer the question. Can you define the word procrastination? The little boy answered, he said, I'm not so sure what it means, but I sure know my church believes in it. God wants there to be no procrastination in our giving. Don't just dream about giving. Don't just talk about giving. Just, don't just plan to give one day. Do God's will today. That's the only way you're going to get started. Once it was a friend, a pastor who was visiting a friend who happened to be a farmer. He asked the farmer, he says, if you had $200, would you give $100 to the Lord? The farmer answered, well, of course I would. The pastor also asked him, he says, if you had two cows, would you give one cow to the Lord? The farmer said, sure, you know I would. Finally, the pastor asked, if you had two pigs, would you give one of those pigs to the Lord? The farmer paused and he said, Pastor, that's not fair. You know I got two pigs. In other words, when it comes to giving, it's always easier to talk hypothetically than to actually obey. Paul says in verse 12, For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, and not according to what he does not have. In other words, don't get hung up on the amount that you give. What's important is that you have a willing mind toward it, a readiness to give. Make your giving regular and sacrificial, and God will be pleased with whatever amount that ends up. He says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burden, but by an equality. And this is the genius of this biblical principle that we call a tithe. We all give a different amount, but we all give the same percentage. 
The word tithe means tenth. This is beautiful how it works. God wants everyone giving to support His work. He wants all believers to have some skin in the game, to have something on the line, to be vested in this. It would create a horrible dynamic if the church were floated by one single wealthy benefactor. No, the giving needs to be spread about. It should be shared by everyone. Here, Paul, he doesn't expect the Corinthians to give it all. He's collecting money from many of these Gentile churches. See, here's God's wisdom in action. If everybody gives their share, then the giving isn't a burden on anybody. So here's the question. Are you giving your share? Once it was an old country preacher, he needed to boost the church's revenues. And so he stood up on a Sunday morning to collect the offering. And he announced to the congregation, Now before we pass the plate today, I just want to ask the person who stole Brother Harvey's chickens not to give their offering. God doesn't want a thief's money. Needless to say, for the first time in months, everyone in the church chipped in and gave an offering that morning. This is God's financial plan. Everybody chip in. God wants all Christians, rich and poor, to help shoulder the giving. He says that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack. That their abundance also may supply your lack. That there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over. And he who gathered little had no lack. Paul proves his point by quoting here, Exodus chapter 16, verse 18. You remember when God rained manna down on the camp, every person was given the same ration. And just as they received equally, now we should give back an equal portion. In verse 15, Paul is saying that sometimes I'll give more than you. And sometimes you'll give more than me. But if we all give our share, it balances out. In the future, there may be a time when famine strikes the Corinthian Peninsula and the church in Corinth is in need. That's when it'll be the responsibility of the Jerusalem church to give back to them. Right now, the church in Jerusalem is the one that's hurting. And right now, you might be hurting financially and needing some assistance. Don't be proud. Don't be embarrassed. Don't refuse to ask. Every week, our elders are available up front here to hear people's situations, and to determine if we can help. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. We want to be led by God's Spirit. But I want you to know, we really like to help. And when we do, all we ask in return is that when you get back on your feet, you give back to God. The church is like a blood bank. Sometimes you're in need and you come in for a transfusion. That's great. But at other times, you come to donate blood. That's great too. It works both ways. Verse 16 tells us, But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. You see, receiving the offering was just one reason that Titus came to Corinth. He shared Paul's concern for a lot of things going on in this church. The divisions that occurred among them. The distortions in their worship. Their carnality and compromise. Just their overall spiritual health. Paul had put into Titus's, God had put into Titus' heart 
Paul's concerns and Paul's cares. And we have and we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. Now who this guy was, we don't know. Perhaps it was Luke, maybe it was Timothy. But this notable brother was picked for a vital task. And not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with the gift. It's interesting, the churches who gave the money chose men to travel with Paul to ensure that it was delivered. Reminds me of the old miser who always heard, you can't take your money with you. Well, he wanted to prove that statement wrong when he died. So just before his death, he called together a doctor, a pastor, and a lawyer. He gave each man an envelope filled with $100,000 cash. He told them, he said, now just before they close my casket, I want you to toss that in that envelope. Well, when the funeral rolled around, the men did exactly, well, sort of exactly what the man said. They tossed in the envelope just before the casket closed. But after the funeral, as they were going home, the guy started talking. The doctor said, well, i got a confession to make. I'm building a medical clinic. So I held back 25 grand. He'll never know. Well, the pastor, he also had to confess. He says, yeah, he says, our church has a building fund. Hate to say it, but I took out $50,000 before I tossed in that envelope. Well, finally, the lawyer scolded them. He said, men, I'm ashamed of you both. My envelope contained a check for the full amount. Well, obviously, the miser's money wasn't distributed to trustworthy people. Whereas the Macedonians entrusted their money to men of integrity like Titus and like this notable brother. Verse 19, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us. Paul wanted other people to be part of delivering this offering. He didn't want the sole responsibility for what was a sizable sum. You see, if something had happened along the way, if the money had gotten lost or stolen or maybe sunk in a shipwreck, Paul didn't want anyone accusing him of absconding with the funds. Paul willingly made himself accountable. And this is the attitude we have here at Calvary Chapel with our offerings. For like Paul, your church has safeguards for the handling of the offering. The money is always counted by more than one person. The counters get vetted beforehand. They even leave us a report that gets matched with the bank receipts. The books are balanced monthly by outside eyes. We can even monitor who's counting and how much cash gets taken in that Sunday. For if there's, for there, if there's very little cash every time the same person counts... Boom, red flag. He or she could be skimming off the cash. That's never happened, trust me. But if it does, we want to catch the scoundrel. We just want to handle the finances in such a way that no one can blame us for spoiling, as Paul says, this lavish gift. This is how we should view our offering to God. A lavish gift. It's God's money, not ours. You're trusting us to take your monies and use them for God in His glory. That is a sacred trust that we take very, very seriously. Paul writes this. He says, providing honorable things 
not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Notice that. Not just in the sight of the Lord, but in the sight of men. I like what commentator Charles Hodge writes. It was not enough for the apostle to do right. He recognized the importance of appearing right. We are bound to act in such a way that not only God, who sees the heart and knows all things, may approve of our conduct, but also that men may be constrained to recognize our integrity. And this is a vital principle. It spans all of ministry. You can't just say, I'm accountable to God, but I don't really care what other people think. You need to care what people think. In Christian ministry, we're not only responsible for our motivation, but we're also responsible for how we come across our appearance. I can be sitting in the bar at Longhorns, eating a steak, watching a football game. Getting drunk could be the farthest thing from my mind. Or me and the church secretary could be innocently driving ourselves to the office depot to pick up supplies. I mean, there's nothing more to it than just we need some help, some supplies. In both situations, I can be totally innocent. But God cares not only about my intentions, He also cares about the appearance. So what if I didn't intend to do something sinful, yet I gave the appearance of it? You see, the damage is still done. This is why 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 22 tells us, abstain from all appearance of evil. Someone who represents Jesus should avoid any appearance of impropriety. I read an interesting comment about Paul. The same Paul who could write like a poet and think like a theologian could also act with the meticulous scrutiny of an accountant. Paul was a big enough man to do the little things and the practical things supremely well. It's true, especially in Christian ministry. A man may be remembered by the one or two big victories he won in his life, but it was his faithfulness in the little things and in the daily duties that set him up for those public triumphs. This was the case with the Apostle Paul. And we have sent with them our brother, this is the third brother now, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. Bible commentators have titled verses 16 through 24 as the tale of three brothers. There's the soul brother. There's the famous brother. And now there's the diligent brother. Of course, Paul's soul brother was Titus. As Paul said in verse 16, Titus shared his care for the church. It's always a blessing to minister with a person who shares your heart. Paul's famous brother is mentioned in verse 18. He was renowned in all the churches. He was their choice for delivering the offering, apparently known for his honesty. We no longer know his name, but he is still an example. And then lastly, verse 22, we have Paul's diligent brother, his soul brother, his famous brother, now his diligent brother. Again, we don't know this man's identity, but we know what he was. He was diligent in many things. Detail-oriented, no doubt. He was a brother on the ball, you could call him. And this is why he was picked to help handle the offering. And I think 
if you put all three of these brothers together, you have the perfect picture of an assistant pastor. I mean, here's a guy you want to serve the Lord beside. He shares the pastor's heart for God and for the people. He's thought of highly by the congregation. He's famous in the family. And he's diligent in many things. He's someone you can trust with the details. Come to think of it, I know somebody like that. I'm blessed to have an assistant like Pastor James. And then verse 23 tells us, If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Paul and Titus were partners. The word literally means partakers. They tasted the same blessings. They fought the same battles. They rode out the same storms. They knew the same Lord. You can't imagine the depth of their bond. I know that there is a real camaraderie among men who have served together in the military. But I don't think anything fuses lives together more than serving God together. You get close when you are a fellow worker for the King of Kings. As a matter of fact, if you're lonely this morning, if you long for community with other people, if you don't have any of those kinds of friends in your life, let me just tell you, you should just sign on here at Calvary Chapel and start serving the Lord. You'll be surprised with how many friends you make. And then chapter 8 closes. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches the glory of Christ. Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of your boasting on your behalf. Here Paul refers to his three brothers by the title messengers or apostles of the churches. He gives them an esteemed title. They're apostles. They were official emissaries of the Gentile churches. And Paul instructs everyone to treat them that way. They were on an important mission. The offering they were collecting from church to church was significant, no doubt. But they were on an even greater mission. Remember, the motive behind this offering wasn't just to feed a few Jewish stomachs in Jerusalem. Remember, it had a higher, a more strategic, a more spiritual purpose. This offering they were collecting was a demonstration of the power of the gospel. It was proof that God could change the hearts of men that he could overcome racial divides and social hostilities, that he could put love for a Jew in the heart of a Gentile that the Greeks were willing to share with the Jews. And in the first century, that was an even bigger breach than any of the divisions that we have in our world today. Once the Red Cross was busy gathering medical supplies for Africans Africans suffering from a natural disaster, In a donated box, they found several sheets that had been worn by KKK members, along with a note. Someone had written, We've recently been saved by Jesus, and because of our conversion, we desire to help. We won't ever need these robes again. Can you use them? The sheets were cut into ribbons, and they were used as gauze to treat the wounds of injured Africans. Symbols of hatred were transformed into bandages of love. And this is the power of the gospel. The people that were former enemies, alienated by pride and prejudice, now see each other as brothers and sisters, and they reach out 
to relieve the other person's hurt. Remember the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Corinth who gave this offering. They had never met the brothers and sisters in the Jerusalem church. Yet due to a spiritual bond, they were willing to share their hard-earned money. And this is what happens every week here at Calvary Chapel when you put your offering in those boxes. That money goes to needs both at home and in faraway places. And in our giving, we are demonstrating the power of the gospel and of our own changed hearts. So there we have 2 Corinthians chapter 8.